The following content contains adult subject matter, including descriptions of sexual abuse of minors, and is intended for adult consumption only. It may not be suitable for all audiences, therefore discretion is advised. Waco, Texas has become synonymous with David Koresh, the Branch Davidians, and the 51-day standoff between the religious sect and federal agents. Authorities suspected Koresh's group of stockpiling weapons. By the time the standoff ended, on the 19th of April 1993, nearly 80 people had been killed, including David Koresh. Today we're going to get into the Branch Davidians and the Waco siege, which has been called one of the darkest days in US law enforcement history. Hello everyone and welcome to Sinister Societies, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Hannah Maguire. And I'm Saruti Bala. Every week we're going to cover your favourite cults, faith followers and secret societies. We'll look at how some of the biggest secretive societies and cults have made their fortunes. And how they've also managed to run in plain sight and permeate into your everyday life. And yes, today is the day we are going to get into the Branch Davidians and how wannabe rock star and high school dropout, sound familiar? David Koresh came to lead the religious movement. We'll get into how Koresh convinced the Davidians that he was Christ and that he'd been tasked to build an army of God. And of course, we'll get into what led up to that fateful day in April 1993. Do you remember the time we were sat in a restaurant and we thought we saw David Koresh standing outside? <laughs> <laughs> I had totally forgotten until that. Where were we? I don't remember. We were sat somewhere. Maybe we were drinking. Probably we were drinking. And then I was like, there was like a ginger dog outside. So obviously immediately we were looking at the I dog. Can, I can see him in my head. And I just I can't like, see where we are. Hannah, look at the man who's <laughs> holding the ginger dog that we're looking at. It's David Koresh. <laughs> David Koresh in a flat cap hanging around in East London. Yeah. It was him. It was so wow. him. I even like Googled a picture and held it up next to the window and it was him. <laughs> so maybe David Koresh never actually died in 1993. Maybe. And he's just roaming around London now with the ginger dog. Stranger things have happened. I mean, you're going to have to wait and find out. But... <laughs> We, we probably don't have the answer for you here, but we did see him. <laughs> of that, I am sure. We, for a fact, saw David Koresh in London <laughs> in 2021. With a ginger dog. Yeah, you can fact check that all you like because it's true. So let's get into the Branch Davidians' beginnings and how David Koresh came to lead the group. The Branch Davidians were first known simply as Davidians and were a branch off of the Seventh-day Adventists. The Davidian movement was founded around 1930 by Victor Hartoff. Victor deviated from standard Seventh-day Adventist theology. He believed that the Messiah predicted in the book of Isaiah was not Jesus. Uh-oh. And instead, it was someone who was yet to come. So for his movement, he bought a compound near Waco, Texas, which he named Mount Carmel. So Vox News writes that Victor told his followers that during the apocalypse, he would help usher in the future Davidic kingdom, mirroring the empire of the biblical king David. 
Victor also said that the apocalypse was imminent. After Victor's death, no apocalypse happened, just in case you needed reminding, after his death in 1955, his wife Florence became the new leader of the church. But Davidian follower Benjamin Roden claimed that he was hearing messages from God, who told him that, surprise, surprise, he, Benjamin, presumably because he had a penis, was the one to complete Victor's work and Florence. Florence was on the way out. I see. It's always interesting to me when people hear these kind of um, predictions or commands from God. Wouldn't it just be handy of God if you're going to come down and like tell Victor in his ear that he should actually be the leader? Maybe just tell everyone else as well. Hey guys, I, <laughs> Victor's going to come up tomorrow and be like, I told him that he was going to be leader. And you're going to be like, no way, man. But I'm also here to tell you that I want Victor to be the leader. That just made things a whole lot easier, wouldn't it? Yeah, it's like your your primary school teacher being like, okay, Hannah's in charge. <laughs> like, <leave laughs> it but it, whispering it only in your ear. <laughs> yeah. It'd be much more helpful if you told the whole class. Precisely. Florence had her own apocalyptic prediction that, as they always do, failed to happen. And she left the compound in disgrace, leaving Benjamin as the leader. And then he started a splinter group that became known as the Branch Davidians. According to Benjamin, once they were ready, Christ would come for them. But it didn't happen in his lifetime. He died in 1978, and then his wife Lois took over the leadership. And then, in 1981, a young, charismatic Bible teacher joined the group. His name was Vernon Howell, but he would later change his name to the much more... Uh, rock and roll. Rock and roll, nicer to say, onomatopoeic, almost mm. percussive, mm -hmm. David Koresh. Mm -hmm. So let's get into how Koresh ended up at the Mount Carmel compound near Waco. As we just mentioned, David Koresh's birth name was Vernon Howe. He was born in Houston, Texas in 1959. His mum was around just 16 years old when she gave birth to him and Koresh spent much of his early life with his grandparents, and he attended an Adventist church with his grandma. Koresh was dyslexic and has described his childhood as lonely, saying that the other kids teased him. But he had a strong interest in music and the Bible. And by age 12, Koresh would memorize and recite Bible verses to other kids. That's not going to make you more popular. No. No. Nah. And when he hit the 11th grade, he decided to drop out of high school. Texas Monthly wrote in 1993 that when Koresh was 21 in 1980, he tried to convince the pastor of his Seventh-day Adventist church that God had told him to sleep with the pastor's young daughter. The pastor reacted by forbidding Koresh to see the girl. A year later, I'm amazed he even lasted this long, but he, he did. A year later, after this forbiddenment, Koresh was excommunicated from the church entirely, not for trying to shag someone's daughter this time, but for the far more serious crime of teaching Bible study classes and leading congregants without permission. That's a big no-no. It is. Like, that's when, as soon as you start going rogue, you can attempt to shag people all you like. If, if this show has taught me anything... It's that, that that you can tend to get away with. But uh -huh. as soon as you start fucking with the word of God. And tax evasion. And and the taxes will externally get you. Mm -hmm. But internally, it's when you just make sure. I see. That you can't back up with the whispers of the uh -huh. divine uh -huh. Uh -huh. <laughs> that you've made up. <laughs> so after that, he turned his back on the Seventh-day Adventists and Koresh headed to Los Angeles. And like so many before and after him cult leaders and normal people alike. He attempted a music career, but it did not work out. 
After he failed quite significantly to become a rock star, he decided to leave California behind and he moved to Waco, Texas, where he ended up joining the Branch Davidians. Koresh was rumored to have had a relationship with Lois Roden, who, as we just mentioned a moment ago, had taken over the Davidians after Benjamin's death. But this was never confirmed. Lois was in her 60s, so was about 40 years older than Koresh. And it was in 1984 that Koresh married the first of what would be many wives. Her name was Rachel Jones, and she was just 14 years old, and also the daughter of a church member. It was later alleged that Koresh went on to marry other minors in the group, although those so-called marriages were not exactly legal. And Koresh fathered at least a dozen children with members of the sect. A former member even told ABC News in 2003 that she was Koresh's youngest bride when she was just 10 years old. Yuck. Yikes. Yuck, yikes. Yucks. Multiple yikes. All of it. Gross. Koresh soon claimed the gift of prophecy and started to gain power within the community. Presumably, it's quite difficult to gain power over child brides. But all of the power he was collecting caused conflict with Lois and her son, George Roden. Koresh challenged George for control of the group. And then one day in 1987, Koresh showed up with seven heavily armed followers at the Waco compound, which resulted in George getting shot in the head and chest. Koresh has not come to play, it would appear. After this, Koresh and his men were charged with attempted murder, but they were acquitted and a mistrial was declared for Koresh. In August 1989, Koresh had a revelation which he called the New Light. And the New Light, very conveniently for Koresh, said that all marriages were now annulled and that all women within the Branch Davidians now all belonged to him. And this New Light idea didn't go down particularly well with the married members of the sect. Some members even left the group because of it. That was a gamble. That that was always going to happen. He was like, okay, some people are not going to like this, but I'm going to do it. Well, because it might, I like yeah, it. It might, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to do it because I want to. And also, it's kind of a way to self-select people out, mm, right? Because yeah. if they're going along with this, this all marriages are null and void situation, yeah. they'll probably do whatever you say. Oh, absolutely. Anytime you're obviously trying to exert control over anybody, and I'm talking about from, and I'm not saying he's a cult leader, but all the way from a small child to mm. a cult leader, you've got to push people's boundaries. You've got to see how far they'll go. How far is mum going to go? How far is she going to let me get away with this? Yeah. And if the marriage annulments, the mass marriage annulments, was not far enough, Koresh also added that men should be celibate and that masturbation was prohibited entirely. Hmm. I can understand his thinking of why they're not allowed to have sex because he wants all the women. Yeah. But I guess maybe, I mean, not maybe, the masturbation bit is just control, isn't it? Yeah, but if you want a compound full of very angry, frustrated men, that's how you get them. Yeah, angry, frustrated and horny and now... They don't even have... Now you're also banging their wives. Yeah, yeah. No wives. No (laughs) wives for you. And it was also in 1989 when former followers started to make allegations to authorities claiming that the sect was committing criminal acts like immigration fraud, child abuse, and involuntary servitude. And those reports were sent to the FBI and other federal officers. Coming up, 
we'll get into how David Koresh prepared his followers and their compound for his own predicted Armageddon. So let's get into how David Koresh led the Branch Davidians and prepared his followers for Armageddon. In 1990, Koresh officially changed his name from Vernon Howell to David Koresh. On court documents, he said the change was for publicity and business purposes. What would you change your name to for business purposes? Oh, business purposes. Probably something like... um, you know how, like, back in the day, people of colour would name their kids, like, really white names mm-hmm, so that they would... Because, mm-hmm. like, of all the things of, like, where there is and isn't really racial bias, one of the places, apparently, that there is quite a lot of racial bias, that studies have actually proven it, is, like, on your name, mm, on a CV. I've read that, yeah. So, like, a lot of companies are now saying, like, you know, you should do more, like, blank name CVing, or there's a more official term for it, but you know what I mean? So maybe I would just change it to something like uh, Charlotte Rothmeyer the third. <laughs> Business. Business. Excellent business. <laughs> what about you? Gareth Pierce. <laughs> That's my boss's name. Old boss's name. Yeah, no, I know, but it's the... And the lawyer. And the lawyer, something. yeah. So if you don't know, listeners, mm-hmm. friends, Romans, countrymen, there's a very famous case in the UK that we've covered on Red Handed, our other show, of the Guildford Four. Mm-hmm. And it's a very famous case of false confession. And also the reason that in this country, the police are not allowed to lie to you when they are interviewing you. Anyway, interrogating even. Gareth Pierce is the lawyer, what well, solicitor of Jerry Conlon, who's the most famous member of the Guildford Four. And Gareth Pierce is a woman. And she changed her name from like June or something when <laughs> she was in her early 20s in the 70s. And I'm convinced it's because of that reason that people would see Gareth Pierce on a CV and she'd be more likely to get yeah, an interview. Yeah. And I love her. So I'm following, I'm following Gazza on this. And it was also the exact name of my old boss, which is very coincidental. And he's very good at business. He's good at business. So getting back to David Koresh, where did the inspiration for the name David and Koresh actually come from for Mr. Vernon Howe? Well, apparently he took the name David because he believed that he was the head of the biblical house of David. How chill of him. Bit big for your boots, Dave. (laughs) And the name Koresh is a Hebrew transliteration of Cyrus. Cyrus was, of course, the Persian king who allowed the Jews held captive in Babylon to return to Israel. Of course, everyone knows who he is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And just to cover our asses, let's say that this name, David Koresh, may have been him claiming to be the Messiah. It may also have not been, allegedly. <laughs> <laughs> do you know what the word Messiah means? No. It means the anointed one. Uh, do you know what Christ means? No. The anointed one. Uh. So that's so he is kind of mm-hmm. putting himself in prophet's shoes. Mm-hmm. Or adjacent. Mm. Prophet shoe adjacent. <laughs> Prophet flip-flops. In The New Yorker, Malcolm Gladwell, uh, my fave, love you, Malcolm, wrote that Koresh's focus was on the seven seals cited in the book of Revelation. The number seven is all over the Bible. In there, God is described as holding a scroll that is locked by seven seals on which are written prophecies about the end of time. It says, quote, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? The answer in the passage is the Lamb. So only the Lamb is the one that can get rid of these seals, the Lamb of God being Jesus. 
everyone with me. Yep. That's the, the mainstream belief. Koresh claimed that he was the lamb, not Jesus, <laughs> and that he could unlock those seals and reveal the secrets written on the scrolls and that those secrets would set in motion the end of time. Ah. Heralded by David Lambkin's Koresh. Mm. All this lamb Koresh is making me feel very hungry. D- honestly, don't. <laughs> I'm starving. It sounds like a delicious curry. It does. <laughs> a lamb Koresh. Lamb Koresh. <laughs> lamb Koresh. But keep the ginger dog out of it. <laughs> so Koresh, whether he is a delicious curry or not, reportedly prophesied that his Armageddon would begin in where else than Texas. And it would begin with an attack by the US military. The Branch Davidians believed that Koresh would be killed in Armageddon, and then he would return to establish God's kingdom, presumably also in Texas. The Branch Davidian compound was on 77 acres of land. When Koresh took over as leader, he updated the compound. The Dallas Morning News reported that they built a structure that had concrete reinforced walls, a watchtower, as well as an underground bunker. I mean, I don't know if updated the compound is really the phrase that I would use. Imagine, we're going to renovate the hell out of this place. Quick, build some concrete reinforced walls in an underground bunker. Yeah, it's more like he, um, what's the word for the, what's the word for the people who go to the conventions and preppers? Yeah, yes. He he prepped it. Oh, yes. It's like the new TV show. Preppers, flip your house. Pardon? <laughs> is that real? No, oh. I'm saying it could oh, be. Oh, right, 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 right. This is the show I'm pitching Probably to you, Probably is Hannah. real, someone. <laughs> yeah, I mean, have you seen that true crime true crime house flippers TV show? Oh my God, no. It's what? true, it's true. Oh my God, I, I feel So like... they like buy a murder house and flip it? Yeah. Yikes, okay. Thank you for explaining that. <laughs> but back to David Koresh's refurbed compound. Because they also had a network of underground tunnels under the living quarters. I mean, just what every house needs. I, if you think there's an apocalypse, then yes. I, I like, quite like tunnels. I have a lot of dreams about tunnels. For someone claustrophobic, that's interesting. Yeah. Mm. I have a lot of dreams about like, I used to have a recurring dream when I was a teenager about the, I'm really outing myself here, the boarding house at my school where all of the international students lives. I used to have a recurring dream about there being tunnels in the walls of the boarding house and I would crawl through them. Sure. <laughs> In 1993, Texas Monthly wrote, quote, Koresh created within the compound a so-called crisis mentality. He constantly preached that the end of the world was upon them and demanded the Branch Davidians on the compound prepare themselves. I mean, yeah, that's going to create a lot of very uh, nihilistic people living in a very sealed compound. Yeah, nothing to lose. Mm -mm. And by the early 1990s, there were about 150 people living there. And they weren't all Americans, because Koresh had travelled as far as Australia, Israel, and England to find people for his apocalypse. And he would even use his followers' money to help pay for these trips. Well, he's not got a nine-to-five, has he? No, and as we've talked about before, if you can't get them on your own home turf, it's quite handy to go abroad, because if you drag them to Waco, Texas, from all over the world, they can't just run away and run home if they decide that you're crazy. It's much more difficult. They're stuck. By 1993... The sect even included 30 British people. Followers were mainly aged between 20 and 30, and tended, once again, as we always see with these groups, tended to be from middle-class backgrounds. It's not a phase, (laughs) mum. Followers were reportedly woken up at 5.30 each morning by a bell. But not Koresh. It's been said that he usually emerged from his bedroom at about (laughs) 2pm. 
So industrious. So, yeah, so committed to the cause. According to the Texas Monthly, men allegedly had to run obstacle courses and spend their days doing hard labor, during which they weren't allowed to drink any water. That's your worst nightmare. Oh, my God. I hate this. Yeah, yeah. Intense exercise and no water. Sruti is probably the most concerned with hydration person <laughs> I've ever met in my life. If we're like on a holiday, she'll just like subtly leave bottles of water next to me. <laughs> She'll be like, oh, do you want to um, just looking, do you want anything just, from the, the shop? Just looking out for you. <laughs> just looking after you. So that's what the men were up to. And the women had to march and chant military style marching songs about killing Babylonians. Former followers have also said that there were strict rules about food. One meal a day was considered normal, and anyone who was caught violating meal rules might be publicly humiliated and sometimes flogged. I'd take it. For the extra meal, I could snuffle. Snuffle? You'd take, you take some lashings, would you? In public humiliation. <laughs> I mean, bear in mind, every time we stop this record, I, like, sneak over to my desk and shove another fruit roll up in my mouth. And also, okay, so I've recently learned a few more things about Saru that make me think she is, in fact, a psychopath. Oh, good. <laughs> the first two are one she has one alarm on her phone and that alarm is set for 7:19 a.m. I like that turned me inside out when I like I have like over 30 alarms on my phone and the only one you have is 7:19 and it upsets me so much. Secondly, the second psychopath step for Saruti Bala is that uh, when she downloads something on her computer, she saves it to the desktop. It's just easier to find. Psychopath. It's just easier to find And that then way. thirdly, <laughs> we have these fruit roll-ups, roll fruit by the foot situations. Oh, I know what you're going to say, but it was just made it faster. She doesn't unroll them, friends. <laughs> she just eats it as a circle. Like an absolute maniac. Who are you? I know. It's like those memes on the internet where it's like a Kit Kat and someone's just taking a bite out of yeah. oh the God. top of the sticks. <laughs> or like people who've just cut the middle out of a cake. Like that is you. It just, um, the unwinding was going to slow me down. So I just took a munch out of the entire roll up. It's like in my eyeline <laughs> and it's making me feel good. Upset. Look at it. <laughs> uh -huh. Okay. So, so I'll, I'll sorry. I'll stop publicly shaming you no, and move on. fine. It was the price I paid for eating half that roll-up earlier. <laughs> but don't flog me. Bible studies classes usually started in the afternoon and could last all night. Followers were reportedly not allowed to eat, drink, or use the bathroom during this time. Koresh included music in his Bible study classes. Remember, he wanted to be a rock star. And he even had a t-shirt made with the slogan, David Koresh, colon, God rocks. Kill him. How, I can't stand this guy. How much money would you need to wear a t-shirt <laughs> that just said God rocks on it? That you, we can get rid of David Koresh. <laughs> um, and I like just, what, like just wear it around for a whole day. A whole day. And I'm not like, allowed to cover it up. No, and you have to like do stuff. You can't just sit in here with me. <laughs> you have to like go out to the pub and like walk around oh, unashamedly, God. unabashed. No, I couldn't. I couldn't. It'd be so bad. You wouldn't do it for a billion pounds. Oh, I would for, oh, it was how much? How much money? How much yeah. money? Um, I'd probably do it for like a quarter of a million. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. I feel like that's fine. Good, because I've got one in my bag. <laughs> Quarter of a million. <laughs> <laughs> no, a David Koresh t-shirt. 
It's just a picture of that guy we saw outside the restaurant. And then underneath it just says, God rocks. Yes, exactly. So if a follower wanted to leave the compound, they would have to go through an exit interview. How very corporate. And Mr. Koresh would actually carry these exit interviews out himself. And he would tell them that to abandon him was to reject salvation. Uh In January 1992, several of Koresh's female followers did leave the compound. And then just a month later, Texas Child Protective Services began investigating allegations of child abuse at Mount Carmel. This came after a Michigan court heard testimony that an 11-year-old girl who lived on the compound was being groomed by Koresh. And it was around this time when Koresh told his followers that the last days were at hand and he believed authorities were planning a raid. As predictions go, spawn, really. I mean, there's a limited number of things that are going to happen from here on out. Yes. And he's like, I have a feeling that all the child molestation allegations and the weapons allegations are going to lead to a big old raid. Mm-hmm. And he's right. According to the Dallas Morning News, in March and April of 1992, the sect bought nearly 60 assault rifles. They also bought 11 pistols, hundreds of 30-round assault rifle magazines, night vision and ground-sensing gear, grenade shells, and 120,000 bullets. And also, in April 1992, the US Embassy in Australia told the State Department that they had heard that the Davidians were thinking about mass suicide. A few months later in July, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms, the ATF, began monitoring the shipments of gun parts and ammunition that were being sent to the compound. One would hope they were doing that anyway. Mm, Yeah, I feel like if you're changing your name, getting a group of people together, converting an old compound out in the middle of nowhere, I'm not a massive fan of big government, but probably someone should keep an eye on them. Next, how the siege at the Mount Carmel compound in 1993 got out of control, resulting in many deaths. So let's get into the siege on the Mount Carmel compound, how it transpired and how it went so wrong. On February 27, 1993, the Waco Tribune Herald published the first in a series of reporting on the Branch Davidian stockpiling of weapons and allegations of child abuse on the compound. The next day, the ATF tried to execute a search warrant at Mount Carmel. According to Time magazine, records showed that the ATF believed the community had nearly 250 weapons, including semi-automatic rifles, assault rifles, shotguns, revolvers, pistols, and hundreds of grenades. Esquire reported that the Branch Davidians were tipped off about the raid and were prepared to fight. It's unclear who fired the first shots, but in the initial raid, Koresh was wounded and four ATF agents were also killed. There are conflicting reports on how many sect members were killed, but some reports say as many as five people died. And this kicked off a 51-day standoff between the remaining members and the FBI, who had taken over from the ATF. 
The first night of the standoff, Koresh gave one of his religious sermons on a local Dallas radio station. And he also conducted an interview with CNN, in which he said, what if I am the Messiah? All right, Kanye. <laughs> I mean, it's just great, isn't he? He's like, well, you're all raiding my comp, what, but what if I'm right? What yeah. if I am the Messiah? Prove it. Yeah. Prove then, I'm not the Messiah. Then you're all going to be real fucking sorry, aren't you? According to the New Yorker piece we mentioned earlier, the siege is said to have possibly been the largest military force ever gathered against a civilian suspect in modern American history. And this is no, like, under-exaggeration, because they had 12 tanks, four combat vehicles, nearly 700 FBI agents, plus a bunch of other personnel, including U.S. Customs officers, Texas Rangers, sheriffs, police officers, and members of the Army. PBS's Frontline reported that on March 5th, nine-year-old Heather Jones left the compound wearing a note pinned to her jacket. And on that note, her mother had said, that once the children were out, the adults would die. But Koresh denied this. Koresh did acknowledge on a videotape sent out of the compound during the standoff that he had fathered more than 12 children by several, inverted commas, wives, who were as young as 12 or 13 when they became pregnant. The FBI tried many methods to breach the compound, including playing very loud music on speakers night and day in efforts to deprive the members of sleep. What do you think is the worst song? Oh, God. It's Friday, Friday. Oh, uh, Rebecca Black. Mm. Oh, it's a good choice. Just that imagine is a that. good choice. Fucking endlessly playing mm. at you. Ugh. So we've just had in our earpieces from producer Gemma the answer to the songs that were actually being played yeah. to the Branch Davidians. Yeah, Gregorian chants. What's that? So, you know, in like, this mean churchy. Yeah, so like, oh. you know, like in the Da Vinci Code, where they walk into a monastery and there's the like. That's not the right song to pick. Yeah, it's like it's like low oh. Latin usually. No. Monks. That's quite like relaxing. Yeah. And then what else? Fra- uh, Nancy Sinatra. These boots were made for walking. That uh-huh. would send me over the edge. Mm-hmm. That's a really good choice. And then some Christmas carols. Ah, uh, that would do it for me. Can't with the Christmas carols. Shush. The FBI during this uh, dance off delivered milk to the sect. What the Branch Davidians didn't realize was that the cartons of milk had listening devices in the cartons and the styrofoam containers that they were brought in. The bugs caught Koresh saying, let me send some guys up there to blow their heads off. So FBI officers were involved in approximately 60 hours of negotiations with Koresh in an attempt to negotiate access to the site. And at one point, Koresh started preaching from the Bible to the hostage negotiators. So finally, on the 19th of April, the FBI raided the compound and several fires broke out. According to a panel of arson investigators, the Branch Davidians were responsible for starting the fire. But survivors continue to deny this. 76 of the 85 remaining Branch Davidians, including 33-year-old David Koresh and a number of children, were killed. 33 years old. Isn't that how old Jesus was when he died? Well done. Yes, it is. Look at me. Look at you. Look (laughs) at all of us looking at each other. (laughs) The Dallas Morning News reported at least 48 illegal machine guns were recovered from the burnt compound. Nine of the surviving members went to federal prison on charges related to the raid. And by 2013, all had been released from prison. 
There are devotees still around who believe that Koresh will be resurrected as a martyr. That's what he said. And he was like, we're going to be sieged. I'm going to be killed. Mm -hmm. So it's step three. It is step three. But didn't Jesus do it in like days? Yeah, on the third day he rose again. Mm, And this was in 1993. It's been a while, David. I mean, maybe not because we fucking saw him in London. Oh, shit. (laughs) (laughs) Just wasn't flashy about it like fucking JC. Yeah. Kept his head down. Maybe he came back and he was like, you know what? I can't be bothered. (laughs) But I'm sick of Waco. (laughs) London, baby. (laughs) And finally, 25 years after the Waco siege, the Dallas Morning News reported that ATF agents have said that the raid should have been called off and that there were failures of surveillance and intelligence. Gonna no-doy that one. Mm. 51 days. Mm -hmm. 51 days. Yeah. With the entire weight of the FBI behind you. Yes, I think that was mishandled. And tanks. Mm. They're tanks. Yeah. Bloody hell. Well, there you have it. That is it. David Koresh and the Branch Davidians. Is he out there? Yes. We've seen him. I've seen him with my own two eyes. (laughs) Should have taken a picture. (laughs) I was too busy holding up my phone looking at a picture of David Koresh. (laughs) So yeah, that is it. It's a very like um, iconic case. Is that the right word to say? It's a heavy hitter. It's, it's extremely a big one. famous. Yeah. yeah, I would say it goes Jonestown, Waco, and then Heaven's Gate. Honestly. Yeah, 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 yeah. I would say so. So yeah, that's it, guys. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Hannah Maguire. And I'm Saruti Bala. And we'll be back next week with another great episode. And we just wanted to mention that for today's episode, we referenced reporting from PBS's Frontline, Vox, Time, Esquire, Texas Monthly, Dallas Morning News, ABC News, and the book, How the Millennium Comes Violently, From Jonestown to Heaven's Gate by Catherine Wessinger. Remember to follow Sinister Societies on Spotify to get a brand new episode every single week. You can listen to this and all other episodes of Sinister Societies for free exclusively on Spotify. And if you like this show, follow at Parcast on Facebook and Instagram and at Parcast Network on Twitter. And if you like us, me and Hannah here, and you want to listen to us talking about some other true crime, then you, my friend, are in luck because you can head on over and join us at Red Handed the Podcast anywhere you listen to your podcast and i don't know what order this is going out in but this week we are going to be recording an episode on mel ignato whose name i have to keep reminding myself how to say but he's a horrible bastard and he killed his girlfriend in a particularly horrible way but the case is called double jeopardy because the piece of shit gets away with it so come over to red-handed the mothership the podcast the reason we dream And we will see you there or here next time. Goodbye. Farewell. Sinister Societies is executive produced by Max Cutler and is a Spotify original from Parcast. It's produced by Kristen Acevedo, Gemma Waters and Tracy Levy. Sound design by Kristen Acevedo with associate sound design by Jamie Ryan. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro. Research by Chelsea Wood. Fact checking by Laurie Siegel. And we're your hosts, Hannah Maguire and Saruti Bala. (laughs) 